You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. Uh, I'm joined by David Grubbs, who is an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. How's it going, David? I almost called you Nathan. (laughs) (laughs) Are you feeling wistful? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. The, uh, the, The poison caterpillars are out, so it's that time of year. Oh, man, Texas. Well, I suspect there are no poison caterpillars in uh, Swan River, uh, Manitoba, where our uh, where our third panelist Matthew Block lives. Not right now. I see a few snowflakes floating past my window, but uh, oh, <laughs> thankfully man. most of the snow has melted for the third time. So hopefully it sticks. <laughs> I, you know, I always tell the story about Minnesota. Um, I think it was the second year we lived there. We left right after, like literally the day of graduation to go to Disney World. And it snowed. It was snowing when we left. And we came back a week later and it was hotter there than it was in Orlando. It was it was 110 degrees. So we went from, I don't know, the high was 30 when we got on the plane. And when we got off the plane coming back, it was 110 degrees. Um, it's a, really a, a remarkable state. Hmm. Well, uh, our our topic today is the self-titled 1997 album by Sixpence None the Richer. Uh, I have here on the show notes that we're supposed to talk about what's new on the network, but nothing's new on the network, so I'm just going to move on <laughs> to uh, Sixpence None the Richer. Uh, is there not a? Uh, is there not a? Oh, or is that that is is it later next later this week or, or next week that a CFP is posting? I think that would be the end of this week, but I don't know what the topic is. That information has not been provided for me. There was a City of Man that posted <laughs> the day that we were recording this, which will be more than a week before you're listening to it. It was on religious liberty. Uh, other than that, I don't have anything. So uh, okay. I don't know how Nathan always gets this stuff. If if he just drums it up, I, Nathan is the one responsible for, uh, in full disclosure, Nathan is the one responsible for getting the stuff actually on the podcast feed. So he, I think he actually does have information that I don't have. Um, so all the more reason to look forward to Nathan's return, even though unfortunately that will mean the, uh, the end of Matthew's regular tenure here on the show. Anyway, sixpence none are richer. Uh, this is the 1997 album. It is the one with kiss me. Um, there's also a version that got released the year a year later with a, a cover of The Laws, uh, There She Goes, which you might know from a, oh gosh, I think it's a, uh, I think it's a tampon commercial that it got put in for, for many years. Uh? 
Um, but we're not going to talk about that song because it was added later to the record. Um, so we're going to we're going to treat this as the cohesive artistic statement it was when there were only 12 songs on it when it came out in 1997. Uh, David, this was Sixpence's breakthrough album, but all the fans of She's All That and Kiss Me and that tampon commercial were probably surprised to learn um, that it's it's actually their third full-length album and that the band had a very difficult history leading up to its release in 1997, a, a history that definitely shows up on the album itself. What can you tell us about this band? Well, um, I... You know, this is this is yet another one that is uh, returning me to what would have been like remedial high school listening for me. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it should be said, David, this is yeah. by an order of magnitude the most popular record we've ever talked about on, in in this series. Um, like this is a, this is one that people who aren't into Christian rock know. I know I'm not making fun of you exactly, but like this is this is not uh, obscure the way some of the other ones we've been talking yeah, about. Yeah. Well, this this time my ignorance is not due to obscurity, but due to you know uh, homeschooled hunkered downness through right. the '80s and '90s, um, <laughs> sort of general disengagement from pop culture. Um, uh, you know, I, I I'm pretty sure that I, that at in in you know the the middle '90s that I I wouldn't have have known that there was a difference between Freddie Prince Jr. and the Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Sure. Um, Would so, that we were all unaware of Freddie Prince Jr. <laughs> I like them in Psych, though. Anyways, um, so Lee Nash, uh, the lead singer, and uh, the uh, oh, his his name's not right. Um, Slocum, yeah, Matt Slocum. yeah. I had Matt, I had Matt in my head. Um, they met at a uh, some kind of a youth camp sort of situation. Um, uh, from New Braunfels, Texas, which, uh, historically German town. Um, uh, so, so that's kind of their, their, their origin. Um, knew each other in high school, uh, and they signed with, um, uh, uh, that's okay, David. I know you're, I know you're prepared. Uh, Rex Records, I think is what you're, what you're thinking? Yeah, of? R-E-X? yeah, yeah. Rex, I had. Yeah, I was like, it's it's a, uh, it's a, it's an acronym. Um, yeah, Rex Records. Uh, they signed with them uh, before they before they'd even really had a gig or anything. Um, so they they produce uh, they produce a couple albums, and then uh, Rex just Rex Rex. Um. It it uh, it uh, goes goes under financially, and apparently this was this was just absolutely a nightmare. You're going to have to unpack a lot of that for me. Um, but I found from November of '99 in the Texas Monthly Magazine um, an article about Sixpence None the Richer um, from just after they got super famous um, because of their association with um, you know that one movie. Um, but it goes into uh, it goes into their history and it goes into the weirdness of suddenly having made it big for a single that really had nothing to do with anything else they'd ever done. Um, so yeah, uh, 
anyway, the so they had this bad experience with um, with Rex Records, their their first uh, their first project. It was going under, and uh, instead of um, instead of producing any more, they just kind of uh, apparently Slocum did did a bit you know, doing sort of background cello and other people's recordings just to try to <laughs> evade having to do anything with Rex. Um, and then eventually got signed by, uh, another, uh, another, uh, another company, another distributor or, or studio, or I'm not even really sure what you call it. Another doomed record label. <laughs> another doomed record label. There you go. Uh, the name though, uh, the name I can give you, because that at least is in my bailiwick, it's from, uh, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Um, and I'll just, I'll just read it. Uh, every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment is given you by God. If you devote, if you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was in a sense, that was not in a sense his own already. So that when we talk of a, of a man doing anything for God or giving anything to God, I will tell you what that is really like. It is like a small child going to its father and saying, Daddy, give me a sixpence to buy you a birthday present. Of course, the father does, and he is pleased with the child's present. It is all very nice and proper, but only an idiot would think the father is sixpence to the good on the transaction. When a man has made... These two discoveries God can really get to work. It is after this that real life begins. The man is awake now. So sixpence none the richer is God's God's ballot sort of God's budget status after we give back to him everything he's given to us. <laughs> um so that that's the uh kind of the, the, the reference in their name, which uh that, that that's pretty cool. I think they must have regretted that name. It's a, it's a very unwieldy weirdo name that um, I, I think helps people dismiss them today as kind of a annoying one hit wonder. I I'm always surprised to learn there are people who think that "Kiss Me" is a terrible song, but we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But I, I think <laughs> I think the name probably didn't help. It it's a little too precious. But of course, when they made the name, they were not imagining that they would get top forty. Airplay, you, you know, they they probably yeah. imagined that they would be a moderately successful Christian rock band, uh, a lot of whom have kind of strange, unwieldy names. Yeah, uh, this is a quote from Slocum in that article that I was uh, that was mentioning earlier. We should link this. Uh, Slocum says, uh, talking about their current their their current status in 1999. Um, the music business has changed so much. Everything's based on just one song. Being a one-hit wonder is a pitfall we weren't prepared for. So, yeah. Yeah. Anything else you want to say about doomed record labels? Yeah, yeah let me fill in some of those gaps. So Rex, Rex Records was one of the many kind of boutique, artsy Christian labels in the early 90s. And I'm just going to read a paragraph from John J. Thompson's book, Raised by Wolves. In the mid-90s, Rex was convinced to leave the Diamante system and move to Platinum Entertainment, 
a major general market label that handled distribution for the Beach Boys and various country labels and had recently purchased the Old Light Records catalog. This might need a little bit of uh, explanation. Um, Used to, when there was such a thing as a record store, and that was really the only way to get your music, you had to have somebody who would um, place your record company's product in actual record stores, and that's called distribution. So they were on Diamante, which was a big um, a big distributor of Christian rock. I'm not sure if they did mainstream or not, and it's, it seems like they have sold out to this platinum entertainment. The deal looked good on paper, but after Rex pulled up stakes and moved to platinum, the system didn't work well. Sales dropped and eventually forced Rex to begin bankruptcy proceedings. At the last minute, platinum stepped in and assumed ownership of Rex without taking on the debts that Rex had incurred. As a result, many of the bands never got paid, and Rex, which had showed so much promise a short time before, was history. And and so I, th- I think what happened is a lot of these bands got left not owning their product, not being able to sign to another label for a while because they still had this contract with this record label that only kind of still existed and not getting any money um, for the work they'd already produced. And I, I think you, re- you, you really obviously hear that on a song like uh, The Lines of My Earth. The Lines of My Earth So brittle and fertile and ready to die I need a drink but the well has gone dry And we in the habit of Saying the same things all over again For the money we share Frankly, he's complaining that he's not getting paid and he's not able to do um, to do the the work that he he wants to do because you know there's no um, there's no system to to provide that. Now he gets they get signed. I, I, by the way, I say he because Matt Slocum writes all the songs, even though Lee Nash sings them. So she's kind of singing um, from a, a man's perspective in a weird way. Anyway, so. They they have a happy ending for a minute, which is they are the first band signed to Squint Entertainment. And Squint Entertainment is the brainchild of Steve Taylor, whose album I predict 1990 we talked about a few years ago. Um, And it's really really set up as an artist-centered label and an art-centered label. And uh, this is their first release, and it's a huge hit. And for whatever reason, the record label can't withstand the success Taylor gets pushed out of the record label and the whole thing um, just completely goes to crap. And so Sixpence None the Richer is in a very similar situation that they were in before the release of this album, which is this time they've had really phenomenal success and yet there's no one to put their record out. Um, and they get dropped by Squint just like they got dropped by Rex. Um, so they're, they're really a hard luck story here. It's just it's two sets of hard luck with this unbelievable flash in the pan success in the middle 
my hope is um, they made enough money off Kiss Me that it, it didn't matter in terms of, you know, actually living their lives. But certainly in terms of having someone to help them get an audience, they lost that twice, uh, which is a real bummer. Yeah. Matthew, do you have anything to add uh, to any of that? I don't know how much of the uh, the internecine uh, struggles you're aware of. <laughs> I'm I'm not super aware of the history. Um, I wouldn't really add anything specific. I did see that same article that David had found in the the Texas Monthly, and I thought there was a couple of interesting lines. The one where Slocum is saying. Um, well, basically, he's saying the Christian music industry is just like any other business, and it's hard to get out of once you're in it. It ended up really being really confining for us. So the, the the confines of the whole legal situation, which made them either unable to release anything or only able to release things that the album, that the record label was telling them they needed to release. So it was this difficult place to be. Yeah. Yeah, not being able to release stuff with their record label and not being able to release stuff without their record label. It's a very 90s problem. You you have all these boutique labels spring up and and they have enough money to last for a little while and then they just kind of fold. Uh, it's, it's just kind of the nature of it. And Sixpence, as far as I know, were signed to three of them, Rex, Squint, and then the one they were signed to after it, I don't think exists anymore either. Of course, nowadays you don't need, especially if you're an established act like Sixpence, you don't need a record label to release music anymore. Um, but I don't think they've done anything since 2013, and I haven't heard what they did in 2013, so I'm not a good person to talk about that, I guess. Well, when I was listening back to this album the last few weeks, I was struck by, on the one hand, how very 1990s it sounds, and on the other, how it doesn't sound like the other big records of the 1990s uh, very much at all. Uh, Matthew, how would you describe the way this album sounds? Well, I'll begin with a bit of a caveat in the sense that uh, this album came out in 1997, and I was I turned 10 years old that year. So <laughs> I think I would have been in grade five at the time. My my knowledge of popular music of the period is a bit limited as a result to the songs I would have heard at elementary school dances or uh, country music on the radio. Um, I lived in, in, in the prairies in Canada. But uh, so I wasn't really aware of, of the CCM industry, let alone Sixpence None the Richer when this album came out, although I would have heard Kiss Me and a couple of years later, uh, There She Goes on the radio and stuff, but um, that's just to say you're, you're probably going to want to fill in some blanks on my end here in a bit, Michael, but um, as far as the album itself goes, I guess you would call the album alternative music or alt rock, but I think just calling it that oversimplifies things a bit. This album has a, a ton of different influences and styles that are being brought together, and uh, I'm just going to quickly run through the album and try to describe some of these styles that are at work here. Um, the first three songs, as, as, as you know, they form this kind of trilogy as they fade into one another. Um, you never really get one ending before the next one begins. And uh, they start the album off with this tone of lament. These are songs of minor keys. They're sad songs. You've got some basic acoustic guitar in the first two, some distorted electric in the third. Um, but the third one is also a little odd because it takes on a bit of a bluesy feel. Um but in these three songs and other three songs, one of the, I think, key uh, instrumental aspects of the music is the inclusion of strings, which 
um, it was in use in some bands of the 90s, but not as many as as there might have been. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if you jump ahead to something like Kiss Me, I mean, everyone knows it's this kind of catchy pop song, but it's pretty basic as far as the music goes. It's got this clean, unadulterated guitar, drums. There's a little concertina in there as well. Um, but that emphasis on, on clean, straightforward guitar, I think, is something, again, that you do see uh, more of in the 90s. I mean, you can go way back to things like R.E.M.'s Losing My Religion, or if you want a CCM comparison, Jars of Clay's Flood. It's just very simple, clean guitar and vocals. Um, and that, that guitar does show up again in that style on, on this album, uh, outside of Kiss Me, uh, spe- specifically in the next song, Easy to Ignore. Um, and uh, that that song, though, takes on a bit of a, of a country feel. So we've kind of had some alternative rock. Uh, some pop, and this kind of has a country feel to it. I mean, you've got the acoustic guitar and the fiddle being primary instruments in that song. The next song is, uh, I'm, forgive my Spanish pronunciation because I don't have any, but Puedo Escribir um, brings in what I'm assuming is a Spanish influence in the music. could be totally wrong here i'm guessing this based on the on the spanish language uh, that's being sung but i i don't know what else to call the genre if it's not spanish inspired i'm not sure what it is then we're back to pop and electric guitar in the next song the next song after that has got piano with some jazz elements i think thrown in and then the last four songs we get back to i think a, a just a, a pure alternative pop rock kind of sound with the electric guitar and these strings again and uh, these strings, I mean, there are some comparisons in the 90s. I think probably the the band I would compare this to would be the Cranberries, maybe. Um, not Zombie, which is, frankly, the song I, I knew best by the, the Cranberries, but uh, some of their other earlier songs like Ode to My Family and Linger, they have this yeah, kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. this alternate rock sound with these strings overlaid and that kind of strikes me as similar to Sixpence None the Richer in, in some ways and of course the, the primary vocalist being uh, this female voice with a, a distinctive voice in either in either band um, you might get the impression that the songs are really disparate musically speaking because uh, I, as I said there's a bunch of different things going on some kind of country influence some blues some jazz and, and more mixed into this alt rock album but it nevertheless feels like a, a complete package, lyrically, but also musically. As I've said, some of the songs literally blend seamlessly from one track to the next. Um, and I think you, the, the musical style at the beginning of the album is, is kind of uh, bookended by a similar style at the end of the album, especially with the strings again on, on either side with that 
with that uh, rock. But one of the key things, I think, tying it all together is, is Lee Nash's distinctive vocals. Um, I'm not exactly sure how to describe them. She's kind of got this light, um, kind of airy, almost almost wispy. Elfin voice, I think. <laughs> that that would be what you could call it, yeah. And and it's different than a lot of other bands at the time. She doesn't over act with her singing. She's not over emoting. She's she's giving an authentic kind of performance, but she's not trying to be. Um, I, I don't know, really, really as I say, overacting with it. Um, I think that unique voice is really one of the the key things musically that helps to tie some of the different elements of the album together. I mean, aside from the actual uh, lyrics and and actual content of the songs, but musically, I think that her voice is one of the key things that makes some very different things sound uh, cohesive. Yeah, and I, I think there's where you really feel that Cranberries comparison. Dolores O'Riordan from the Cranberries yeah. also has a very unusual voice. And while their, their voices aren't that similar, they're similar in the way they don't sound like everybody else singing in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Grubbs, what would you add? Well, I mean, the bit into the... the the late 80s, but particularly the first half of the 90s, there were um, n- not not tons, but there there were a number of kind of alternative rock uh, gr- uh, bands who were coming who were kind of coming to the fore. Some of them had been working through the 80s and, and into the 90s, but were kind of coming to greater prominence. Um, who also had that kind of distinctive female vocalists. I'm thinking of like 10,000 Maniacs and No Doubt. Um, We've already mentioned uh, the Cranberries. Um, These are, you know, again, bands in which most of the um, instrumentalists are, are men. It's not like a, it's not like Alanis Morissette or Jewel where you've got kind of like a single uh, sort of a female songwriter who, who is sort of very clearly the, the centerpiece, but, but a band with that distinctive voice, female lead singer. So that was kind of a, was kind of a thing. Um, so the, the you know, they're, they're, um, Sixpence None the Richer is kind of, uh, they, they've been active during, during the times when these, these other bands are kind of beginning to make it big. They don't make it big until like a stroke after the rest of them. Um, but still, you know, there's there's kind of that that precedent, uh, that precedent. Um, they remind me a bit of Nickel Creek, who would come later. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly that kind of bluegrass feel, especially when um, you know the fiddles. Uh, there's also some pedal, um, some uh, uh, was it pedal still the guitar that's that's showing up? Yeah, in, yeah, uh, on um, in, easy to ignore and uh, yeah and uh, lines of my earth. Yeah, but there's also this kind of interesting, um, oh, what, 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 almost kind of a Middle Eastern feel to a, a track like Waiting Room, which reminds me of nothing more than like 93 to 95 Lorena McKennett, um, which, which is kind of a weird, you know, sort of a, a, a weird thing to throw in there, but, um, that was also, that was also getting, um, 
uh, Lorena McKent was also getting play on on this on these same kinds of radio stations. So in terms of how are how are these musical elements sort of entering someone's imagination so that it finds its way into the song? Um, the the sweet voiced thing I felt like as I was listening to it, it kept reminding me of something, and I could never quite put my finger on it. Um, though just kind of in reading about her her own background um she she had sort of seen herself as more of a country vocalist and that's and there there's definitely i think an an element of that still in still in there um but but other than that i mean this this was a this was a time in which um i had st- Started paying attention to music, but my tastes were largely guided by a friend of mine who was really into um, people like the Cranberries, and no doubt. And so I was sort of sort of being guided in that direction. Uh, by the time uh, Sixpence and the Richer came out, um, I I was listening to other people's recommendations and kind of kind of missed them. <laughs> I think the out of time, the REM out of time comparison is a really, really good one in in the sense that both there's a lot of strings on that album uh, and that it's got a lot of really weird, unusual folk instruments. And on this album, a lot of those are played by this guy, John Mark Painter, who's a kind of Nashville session musician, but he plays the hurdy-gurdy, he plays the trumpet, he plays a couple of instruments that are listed that I don't know what they are, something called the oud and the bol-bol. Like, I, I'm not really sure what those things are, and when I tried to oh. Google them, I couldn't find anything. So, Those are what you're hearing, I think, in the Middle Eastern bits of uh, waiting room. Yeah, that, that might be so. So, I mean, there's... You, you owe a lot, I think, of the sound on this record to him. Um, you also owe a, lot, owe a lot to the fact that Matt Slocum is a cellist in addition to a guitar player. So I think he's arranging a lot of these strings, and the album is really unthinkable without the strings. Um, I, I don't know how they pulled a lot of this stuff off live, because so much of it is so atmospheric, and how are you going to do that with a three- or four-piece band? Um, the other thing I would add is about Puedo Escobar, Um one thing that is weird about that song is that the verses are in 11-8 time. So it's it's very disconcerting. Um, and the fact that it's sung almost entirely in Spanish uh, makes it uh, even more disconcerting if you're an English speaker. Although it, it should be pointed out, the only part that's not sp- sung in Spanish is when she says, Tonight I can write, which is what uh, Puerto Escobar means. So they're, they're having a, a little bit of a joke with that, I suppose. Mm. That might be my favorite track on the album. It's a, it's pretty cool, and the the lyric for that is fr- uh, directly from Pablo Neruda, uh, the Chilean poet. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, the other thing I would call attention to is "Lines of My Earth," which is probably my favorite song here. And I used to think of it as a country song, but as um, Matthew points out, it's really kind of a jazz song, and it combines those two things in a way you don't hear very often. It, it's 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 both a country song and a jazz song, and it's just those are not genres that often get pushed together. So I, th- I think it's a, a quietly a very experimental record, uh, musically speaking. It's a musician's record. Yeah, I think that's true. Mm-hmm. It should be pointed out that um, most of the record is not played by the band. So Slocum's on every track, Lee Nash is on every track, and the drummer uh, is on most of the tracks. But um, a, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of session musicians on this album. And... Uh, 
you know, they, they make it sound really good. Kiss Me Out of the Way, um, since that's the song literally everybody knows. Uh, it's kind of a punching bag now. I can't help but think that that had more to do with its ubiquity in 1997 and 1998 than with the quality of the song itself, because listening back to it the last few weeks, I thought, man, why does anybody hate this song? David, you said last week you've never heard it before. Um, what do you think of it? Turns out I had heard it. I figured you I had. I just never paid attention to the lyrics. Um because it came out in a time when I wasn't listening to the radio. Um, I didn't hear it when it was on the radio. I heard it. Oh, uh, how long is it between when it's on the radio and when it's playing in the store? <laughs> Wait, what do you, what do you mean by that? I don't like, like when, when, when uh, you, you might start hearing something in like the Walgreens or whatever. Oh, yeah. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> You know, like, at what point does that happen? When does Muzak uh, take over? Yes. Um, so, you know, there's there's a lot of songs that um, I, I've I've come to them years later and realized, you know, this is a song I've heard before, but it was in the context in which I'm absolutely not listening to the music. <laughs> so, yeah, it turns out um, I knew this one musically, like I knew the, like I knew the, you know, kind of the rhythms of it. I knew the, I knew the beats of it. I just hadn't ever particularly noticed the, the, the lyrics, which are just as sweet as they could possibly be. Um, They're sweet without having any cliches in them, really. Like it's such a yes. weird, specific thing. Um, like the, the, the chorus. Like the milky twilight, that's lovely. The moonlit floor, that's really nice. Um, you know, the, 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 those are just really nice phrases. Um, I have no idea what the thing with the barley is. Um, I do like green, green grass. I love the repetition of green. Like, it's just really, just really nice. Um, the sense of personal history between the characters that are implied very simply with words like those shoes and that dress. Um, and then uh, the second verse with the broken tree house and that it's hanging tire, um, your flowered hat, your father's map, the sense that whoever these people are, they have this, this long history that's part of their story. Um, 
like there's there's not there's not much like this is there's like two just these two little verses and the repetition of the chorus and it's like it's bouncy and it's sweet and you know her lyrics you know make it sound you know just again very very sweet but there's um uh i, I what you what you said michael about no clichés i that's one of the things i really really like about um the way that this works it's it's kind of a a, a very tight compressed little story of um love between people who shared childhood mm-hmm. which um is a story that used to be much more common than it is what would you add to that matthew um i i mean i'd i'd agree with that kind of comment too about it, it it's really just a, a description of this burgeoning romance between these these children who presumably grew up playing together. It's it's the locations where they used to play, the broken treehouse, um, the hanging tire, these kind of things. The bearded barley is probably just a reference to the the physical description of of barley. It kind of has like a, a hairy head. Um, which pokey little grass sticking off it so i'm assuming that's what it's mm-hmm. coming out of the field um i did note in a couple of interviews that i was reading in advance of this episode um comments about kiss me being inspired by a poem by dylan thomas however none of the interviews in which they repeat this story a couple times explain what poem and i have not got enough knowledge of dylan thomas to know what might be inspired maybe it's just the type of of language of, of description here but apparently it came out of out of a period where slocum was reading some dylan thomas poetry and that's where this poem comes from so i'd, I'd be curious to know if either of you know more about that than i do i do not mm. well, if any of our listeners do cool. please let us know <laughs> uh the way she sings oh going into the chorus just kills me I, I th- it's so cute. It's so sweet. Like I, I get that if you hear this song 15 times a day, as we all did in 1998, it, it's annoying. But I, I really think this is this is one of the great pop songs of the late 90s. Um, and uh, you know, if you've got to be known for a song, one song and no other, this is not a bad one to be known for. Maybe they feel differently. Probably bought Matt Slocum a house, if I had to guess. <laughs> Well, given what he'd been through, the universe owed him a house. That's true, yeah. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I never saw I, I never saw She's All That until a few years ago. Victoria made me watch it. It's fine. The song is better than She's All That. <laughs> cool. So all I know about She's All That is that it is background to why uh Rachel Lee Cook uh, Rachel Lee Cook ends up being later cast as Sean Spencer's girlfriend in Psych. Man, like, it all comes back to Psych for you, doesn't it? No, serious, seriously, seriously. Like it, because Psych is is about this kind of deep nostalgia for an era in pop culture that I was radically disengaged from. So watching episodes of Psych with my wife is like pop-up television for the pop culture i missed do they make a kiss me joke um i honestly can't remember if they make a kiss me joke um but the fact that that she and 
uh, Sean Spencer kind of grew up together is sort of part of their story. And so I can't help but see that as, as kind of a sideways reference to at least the content of the lyric, even though that's not at all the plot of the movie. At least that's my understanding is. And like, it's, is that what the movie's about at all? No, the movie's Pygmalion. Yeah. All right. I like this. I like the story of the song. (laughs) (laughs) The album is anchored, as Matthew mentioned, by two trilogies of songs that lay out its major themes. So we'll we'll definitely need to talk about those. And the first one is those first three songs. We have forgotten anything in the waiting room. They are obviously inspired by the band's trouble with Rex Records, but we've already talked about that. Matthew, what did they have to say on a more global level? Yeah. Uh, the first song on the album, We for- we Have Forgotten, is, is kind of about the pain that comes when dreams crash and the fear about trying to dream again. Uh, Slocum kind of imagines dreams here as these horses bred with star-laced wings, flying horses like Pegasus. But like Pegasus, there's an element of fantasy about them. They're not quite real. They're um, they're inconsistent angel things, I think, is, is Slocum's words. And so when you try to make them fly, the wings don't necessarily work together and it all just comes crashing back down to earth, bound, bound, he repeats. Um, When a dream fails like that, when you come crashing back down, it can be frightening to want to dream again. Uh, So in the choruses of that song, we actually get Nash's vocals competing with herself. Um, She says one thing just to have her own voice contradict it uh, the next second. So the first voice, uh, she articulates and, and laments Uh, that we have forgotten how it used to be. We've forgotten how to dream, in other words. Uh, But the second voice doesn't want to remember how to dream. Don't try to make me fly. I'll stay here. I'll be fine. Don't go and let me down. I'm starting to like this town. So the second voice is is trying to uh, settle for where she is, or or he is, depending, again, the, the complexity of having a female vocalist singing words written by Slocum specifically. But, um, so the speaker is afraid to, to try to fly again, to dream again. And so they, they want to stay in the same locale as town and they sabotage themselves as, as a result. When wings beat the night sky above the ground, will I unwillingly shoot them down with all my petty fears and doubts? She asks in the second verse. And in the second chorus, she confirms it. Yes, she says, don't go, I'll shoot you down, she says. And I think anyone who's had this dream or this concept uh, had a dream that's collapsed in this kind of way. Uh, You can sympathize and and, uh, hear your same kind of failure in the midst of the song and the fear that comes from wanting to do something again. Um, Does anyone have any thoughts on that song before I move on to the next one in this trilogy? I think that's the one that makes sense of the album cover art. The album cover art is, in fact, called We Have Forgotten, so good call. Or I think it's called How It Used to Be. Yeah, which, um, if, if, you, if you mirror it, uh, you can actually read the lyric. Hmm. Oh, well, that makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. I didn't even notice that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's got, the, uh, it's got the, the kind of the visual allusions to a happiness in Eden, um, you've got a snake in a tree, and then you've got um, the man being sort of pulled off by this fiery chariot, reaching down for um, the woman who is who is reluctant. And so, um, even though it's very much 
you know, about the situation of their, the, the biographical situation of the band, um, that, w- that we've been talking about. And then thematically that very human experience of disappointment, um, it gets cast in this, um, in this theological vein through the conversation that's happening between the song and the cover. That's observant. I, I hadn't noticed the connection between the cover there, although I was curious about the cover. Yeah, that, I was really curious about it too because there's a there's a, a almost a an uh, an iconography kind of look to it. Um, it, it, it reminds me especially of if you if you've ever seen um, Ethiopian or Coptic, Coptic iconography. There's there's some some kind of similarity of the way the figures are drawn, um, but it's very clearly not that. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, but then, um, yeah, I, I, I was trying to figure out what the writing was, and then I was like, "Wait a second, that's just English reversed." And I hit the mirror in in the in Microsoft Paint, and suddenly there were the lyrics. Good detective work, Grubs. <laughs> well, if, if we jump in then to the second song here, um, the second song entitled Anything, begins before the final notes of the first song finish fading out. Um, and they continue this this conception of sorrow and loss. Um, this is my 45th depressing tune, the song begins, and then it goes on to lament the soul-sapping nature of, of the music industry. Um, They're looking for money as they clean my artistic womb, Nash sings, which is a horrific image. It, it, the it, idea That's of a, awful edgy for... 1990s Christian rock, I have to say. Oh yeah, it is. It, it's a it's a very striking image. Um, this idea of the record label literally invading uh, their uh, the the artist's womb uh, for the child to steal and, and then sell, basically. This is my 45th depressing tune. They're looking for money as they clean my artistic world And when I give birth to the child I must take to fly Cause the black in our pocket won't let us find So hey baby, can you shed some light on the problem maybe, cause we're all tired and we like to know, if we should pack our tent, shut down the show, yes we But when this child finally is birthed, creative process produces something uh, all the artists can really do is run away in the situation that they're in they don't have money to fight a proper fight for it the lyrics say and that's that's surely the you know an explicit uh, reference to the legal troubles expensed on the richer had as they tried to get away from this bad record label um, but in the midst of that loss of agency slocum begins wondering whether it's worth continuing at all we're all tired and we'd like to know, he writes, if we should pack our tents, shut down the show, 
Yes, we would like to see a burning bush type sign, but anything would be fine. There's an allusion here that's obvious uh, to the Hebrews under their Egyptian masters. They're hoping for a sign like Moses had at the burning bush, uh, some kind of promise that freedom might finally be coming. Slocum, Slocum is looking for something, anything that tells them hope is worth hanging on to, that an end to the oppression they're experiencing will come. Um, the, the reference to the packing up of the tents and closing down the show, I mean, yeah, you could read that as just a reference to the concert festival being shut down. So the show's over. Let's all go home. Let's just call it quits. But given the allusion to Moses, I wonder if we might also read that uh, as a reference to the Israelites wandering in the desert. Um, scripture talks about the pillar of cloud which led the Israelites. And when that cloud settled in a place, the Israelites would make camp. They'd set up their tents and they would not pack up their tents again and move on until the cloud departed. So throughout all their journeys, uh, I'm reading from the book of Exodus now, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. And Numbers adds this, whether it was two days or a month or a longer time that the cloud continued over the tabernacle abiding there, then the people of Israel remained in camp and did not set out. So like the Israelites waiting months or even years for a sign from God uh, that said that they could move on. In, in some ways, Sixpence and the Richer is stuck where they are, too. They're unable to move on. They're stuck in this creative desert. They dance the tune, the record label demands, their puppets, etc., etc. Uh, but secretly, they're sealing their lips for the someday that they might finally be free of the label and be able to put all their difficulties and frustrations into new music, into their own creative uh, process without the fear of you know, the, the record label stealing the baby. But the waiting's hard, and they wonder uh, whether it's worth waiting for it all, whether a sign of deliverance will ever come, whether you'll ever get that burning bush or the, the cloud of, of uh, the pillar of cloud rising and telling them to move on. And obviously, most of us aren't going to experience this kind of um, helplessness at the hands of a, of a big record label. But I think we all experience that kind of helplessness, that sense that our hands are tied, that we can't do anything, that we're stuck where we are. And that sense of longing for release, which seems anything but certain, is something at least that I can uh, put myself in the shoes of and, and see uh, in my own life. And, and the relevance of a song like this to, to people facing that kind of situation. What about you guys? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, that does lead in the end then to the third song, the final one of this opening trilogy, and it's called The Waiting Room. And it gives us really this picture of being locked in an antechamber, almost a kind of purgatory, uh, waiting to be let into the, the real world. Um so the song picks up directly on themes from the previous song. Uh, in anything, the band lamented that they couldn't fight. Uh, but now the first line of this song says that you should fight till your fists bleed. Um, they're still caged, yes, but now there is this kind of defiant hope that God's going to unlock the cage, that he'll unlock the door you need to walk through, Slocum says. There's still no promise that relief is coming immediately. It could be near, but then maybe it could be far, uh, the lyrics say. But there's still, I think, this growing confidence that God will intervene at some point. 
Here we are in the waiting room of the world. We will wait until you call our name out loud. They repeat it again and again. So the record label's still the bad guy here. They're the devourer now. That's the title that Slocum gives them. But the band sees itself as prolific. Um, that word, especially in the context of the previous song, I think gives us a sense of them being pregnant, prolific, with sacred ideas and creativity that the devourer, devourer is not able to consume, even if they can trample on those sacred ideas. Um, I even think the word, the use of the word baby in the previous song and in this song is, is intentionally bringing up that concept of pregnancy again. And even the metaphor in this song where it says, uh, where Slocum denies that there can be a marriage uh, between the record label and the band. You can't mirror heaven to your hell, he writes. So I, I think there's some intentional playing with the idea of pregnancy and this idea of bringing forth a baby. So whatever baby they will bring forth is kind of what I think he's saying. Um, it, it's not going to be the record labels. Um, they're not going to let the baby go without a fight. Here they're, they're willing to fight. And yet there's still all of this doubt. Do I go quietly down? Do I kick? Do I scream when I'm bound? Bound, again, being the word used to describe the winged horse in the first song after it fell back to earth. Are you coming to open the door, they ask God? Are you near? Are you near? Is it far? So salvation still seems distant and they uh, are still, it's still necessary for them to wait. Uh, but there is, I think, I think, that sense of defiant hope, one willing to fight even though salvation itself is not clearly revealed or clearly promised. And I think that kind of defiant hope in God, despite the evils of this world, despite its sorrows, despite its frustrations, despite even the apparent silence of God himself, I think that's an admiral kind of thing, that, that defiant hope and something we can all learn from. You know, if you want to know what Christian rock was like in 1997, I remember when this album came out, reading online, somebody complaining that that line, fight so you f your fist bleed, baby, is uh, unchristian. <laughs> that's, nice. the, that's the sort of thing we had to care about uh, before 9-11. Mm. David, anything to add about that trilogy? Or shall we move on to the second one? No, I think I think you did a really good job of of digesting those, uh, Matthew. You 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 paid a lot more attention to to them than I had. Well, the, the second trilogy comes near the end of the album. Uh, Sister, mother, I won't stay long in love. My life is played. My mistakes broken love. Slaps in the face. But I'm trying to Those three songs. Well, if if we followed the uh, if we followed the babies and the bounding in the first trilogy, uh, the one to follow in the second trilogy is the sister, um, 
their sister mother. So there's the sister in the title of that of, the, of that first song. Um, the sister shows up in the second verse of the next song. Um, I won't stay long, and then the sister uh, also shows up in the chorus of the song Love. So who is who is this sister? Um, my life is plagued by mistakes, broken love, slaps in the face, but I'm trying to care, to dare to embrace your face. So we have that um, that beatenness that we've seen earlier thematically in the album, but also a rising change within the voice of these songs, um, su- suggesting that the... Uh, the resignation of some of the earlier lyrics, uh, there, there's at least a desire to rise above it, even if it's not entirely felt yet. Um, but it in, who is the who is the face that they that they want to embrace? So who are they going to turn to uh, for this? Hug him like a brother, kiss her like a sister. Let it be my mother for now. Okay. Next verse. I want to find where the maid in the street is pouring her wine. I heard she takes you in and gives you the words you need said. If you'll be her brother, she'll kiss you like a mother. She'll even be, or she'll kiss you like a sister. She'll even be your mother for now. Okay. All right. So this is the beginning of Proverbs 7. My son, keep my words. Treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your forbidden, or your, uh, call insight your intimate friend. So, uh, here wisdom, wisdom is the one who you should, who you should call your sister. Um, then this reference to the maid who is, who is out in the street, um, offering hospitality, you know, kind of envisioned as wine and words. Um, that's, you know, that, that's Proverbs one wisdom cries aloud in the streets saying, how long, O simple ones, will you be simple? Come to me. So, uh, it's, it's a call for wisdom, um, it, given this des, this this desire for change to to move past um, the pain that is so um, discouraged, disheartened, um, left uh, left the speaker feeling creatively hollowed out um, that that kind of really visceral imagery that Matthew has talked about. How do you rise above that? And there's this turn to wisdom that wisdom would help. Um, bring about bring about this change. So the next song, uh, the leaves are falling. Something's calling me here. The state of depression that I'm walking in got the impression that I won't stay here long. Right. So something's happening. Something's changing. Uh, the sky is darkening. I can feel it in the air. My heart is sinking. I know winter's on the way. I know I'm like this. I still don't know what to do. I know I am like this. Oh, sister, show me what to do. So again, sister wisdom. Um, I know that change is needed, but it's becoming very comfortable to stay here in the depression winter. <laughs> uh, and this reference to the sky darkening 
and the and night imagery is something that sh- has been showing up in 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 songs uh lyrics all through this album um that the night is is becoming a more and more comfortable place to be uh but by the end of this song the speaker wants to lie in the sand and have sunshine on me so love uh the third in this trilogy um Wisdom finally speaks, and you can see it in the lyrics because it has quotation marks around it. (laughs) (laughs) You must be the seed, descend into the earth, searching for the union of death, and then rebirth. So this is what Sister Wisdom says, but it's also what Christ says. Unless a seed... Uh, falls into the uh, unless the seed uh, falls to the ground and dies, um, there can be no growth, right? So I need patience, or I need love. It is patience. It is kindness. I need love. It is rain after the dryness. I need love. Sister wisdom, help me see. It's the only thing that I need. So the death of the seed that falls into the ground, but then another image. Wisdom speaks again. The harvester is near. His blade is on your skin to plant a new beginning. Well, then let the cut begin. Right. So this idea that uh, the old thing needs to be harvested and die so that something new can be sown. Um, and I don't know. Maybe we have a, a weird revival of the bearded barley. Um. But yeah, this is this is what wisdom has said. Uh that if you want new life, you have to accept this death. Um and uh only only when that death comes can you be sown into the ground and then the rains that sh- that that uh were needed so desperately in uh uh the lines of my earth track, um then those will come and new life will come. Yeah, I, I think the connection there to Lines of My Earth is really important. In, in some sense, not just mm-hmm. that first trilogy and not just the second trilogy, but the whole album is really leading up to that song, Love, which uh, was actually mm-hmm. the first single, I believe, released from the album, but it was only released to Christian the Christian market, so I don't know how many people ever mm-hmm. heard it. Um, but I remember hearing that song before the album came out and thinking, wow, what a great song. It's got that stellar yeah. bass line. It's really good. Matthew, anything to say about that second trilogy? Uh, no, not specifically. I just, I mean, the, the same thing about tying it into the lines of my earth. I, I thought that was important to kind of draw out the, the text there, how it's got this, you know, infertile earth. And then finally you get the rain and new growth. <clears throat> yeah. Well, um, Matt Slocum wrote most of the songs on the album. I think the only one he didn't write, uh, Puerto Escribir, because that lyric is by Pablo Neruda, and a guy named Sam Ashworth wrote I Won't Stay Long, um, which, if you know the uh, musician and producer Charlie Peacock, that's his son, Charlie Peacock, not real, not Charlie Peacock's real name, as it turns out. Anyway, um, Slocum wrote most of the songs on the album and and which is why there's this these these strange moments when lee nash is singing from a male perspective and i remember that was another thing um people in the christian rock community got got up in arms about because they thought um they thought kiss me was a lesbian song 
because she says you wear those shoes and I'll wear that dress. I, I, but I like first of all, men wear shoes, and second of all, like <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, so, so people, people were really. Um, I know it's hard to imagine, um, but people were really looking for reasons to be offended when this album came out. I do want to talk about the one song here that Lee Nash wrote, um, "Easy to Ignore." Matthew, would you say that this song expresses something more or less universal about the early days of marriage? Yeah, I mean, it's it's important, I think, that this song comes right after Kiss Me, where you've got kind of this childhood perfect concept of of a relationship. And then you get easy to ignore where we start to see some of the troubles um, in this in a relationship. Um, I don't know much about Nash's personal life, so. I don't know whether it's meant to be biographical or not, but uh, um, we'll just take a look at what the words themselves say. Um, I think regardless of whether this song is about Nash and her own husband, there's something here that married couples often do experience in their first years of marriage. And that's uh, until you get married, you, you don't you don't realize how much you'll have to compromise or how much how selfish you really are until you have someone else who's living with you um before you get married you have your own plans your own interests your own ideas uh but as marriage brings two people together these individual plans and ideas can begin to clash with the other persons Um, in this song we have nash singing about the stars in your eyes making it really hard to see you and it sounds to me like this other person has these ideas these goals these dreams that they're pursuing but they're doing it in such a way as to not really pay attention to the singer herself Um, they're they're looking past her his his song um, because the husband also seems to be a, a musician of some kind he he sings a song but it blows right through her it's not paying attention to her none of it impacts her because he's not looking at her um at its best marriage is meant to become this union of thought and purpose not just a union of of emotional or physical uh things and as each member of the marriage learns to see what's important to the other they, they need to learn to work to support them in their goals and abandon goals if they get in the way of the marriage and learn to set new mutual goals and dreams together the problem and easy to ignore is that the recipient of the song hasn't managed this transition well um, the speaker sees the husband as selfish he's still privileging his own ideas his own dreams his own stars over the needs of his wife and that's creating this tension because the wife feels ignored um, i think in in the early days of marriage the problem can go the other way too um, if a husband or wife expects their spouse 
to devote their entire attention to them solely, uh, that can create tensions as well. There's this strong need in marriage to find a balance, uh, to recognize each individual's needs vis-a-vis the needs of the couple as a whole. And that's particularly difficult to do in marriage because, I mean, while you can think about it theoretically and you should discuss these kind of things in advance of marriage, until you actually have to put it into practice, until you have to live with someone else and be equal uh, together in, in this kind of unity, you you never know how selfish you are in some ways. Ain't that the truth? Uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, but finding that balance is is, is just all the more difficult in this kind of context uh, of the song because it, it doesn't seem like the partner is willing to talk about this. It, they're unwilling to compromise their individual pursuits. And with this inability to communicate over the situation, it, 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 it's very difficult to, to move on from it. And there is a sad ending to that story, which is that she and her husband um, got divorced. Mm. I did not know that. David, do you have anything to say? I think it's important to, uh, I think it's important to the song that uh, it's being sung essentially by an artist to an artist. Um, Yeah, her husband was the drummer for the band PFR. Yeah. Mm. So... The, the idea you're you let your song blow right through me your mighty your mighty intellect makes it you mighty hard to see the stars in your eyes make it really hard to see you um, when you kind of read it in light of that um, specifically artistic and ambitions that um, and I would imagine this that this is probably something that people that uh, people who meet and you know fall in love in the context of some other, some other kind of more ideal based or mission based or, you know, achievement of vision based kind of activity. Um, you know, to what degree, you know, is he seeing her and her voice as an extension of these artistic ambitions, um, not seeing her as the person with whom he's relating um, with whom he's connected at this at this level that is not that of an instrument to to achieve the artistic vision. Um, you know, I, I could see, you know, had to, not being deeply in the world of music, but kind of reading around there, you can you you see that musicians often don't have good relationships when. Oh, necessarily with the people that they are producing music with, because sometimes that, you know, the view, it, it goes from muse to hag ridden um, as the, the desire to achieve um, artistically what you're looking for outweighs um, the, the personal cost of the humans that you're dealing with. Um and and so sometimes it's it becomes unpleasant to kind of get behind the music and you find that the the the, the artist that you admire has was you know kind of a jerk to the people involved in producing it, but that was part of what produced it, um, and that would be very hard to be married to. 
Um, so I don't know. I don't, again, I don't know anything about her biography, but the way that these lyrics kind of fit with those ideas, um, with that, that pattern that you, well, that you also see in, in the world of, in the world of art. Um, it's, uh, it can be dangerous when your vision becomes more important than the people around you. Right. And, uh, you know, maybe he tells his side of the story in a song. I don't know. I don't I don't know that I've ever listened to PFR. <laughs> um, but you uh, did wonder way more people, even if he did tell his story in a, in a song, way more people have heard easy to ignore than anything he did. Um, just because this was such a hit album. So I do kind of I hesitate to wade into that. Um, I, I think I, th- I think. The idea that marriage points out how um, cruel we all are, I think, is is an, an important thing to keep in mind and something I used to tell students when they were getting married. All right. Well, we are well over time. Um, so on our way out, uh, why don't you guys point out another moment on the album that deserves our listeners' attention? Well, one of the things that uh, I enjoyed is uh, tracing references to Moonlight through the uh through the album um it shows up in lyrics by uh you you said that um i won't stay long is 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 isn't slocum yeah that's right yeah well i so it's so it's interesting that all all three of the lyricists um uh are well actually four if you're if you're including including um uh the, the 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 Spanish song Pablo Neruda. Yes, Pablo Neruda. Um, all of them are using the imagery of of moonlight and the beauty of 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 night, um, and that that I thought was a, a really interesting through line. Matthew, uh, for my yeah, for myself, I guess. Uh, We've, we've already kind of talked about the lines of my earth. Um, I thought that was an excellent song, and it's well worth listening to if people don't know it and are just familiar with, you know, Kiss Me by Sixpence None the Richer. Um, I do want to briefly mention the final song, Moving On, um, which implies that the crisis of the album or the, the difficulty of the creative process in this record label context has been overcome, or at least if there's still concern about the industry, we're recapturing an element of hope. We're not standing still anymore. We're not locked in the, the waiting room from the beginning of the album. We're walking now. We're walking on a path, moving on in a new and happy song. And then there's this this final part here uh, where, where the sign, the burning bush that the author was looking for in song two has finally appeared. There's a fire inside the tree, flames of knowing kissing me. I've waited long to see a sign from you, the song says. And so... It ties it right back again to the to the beginning of the album. The album in general is just really well constructed so that the themes and ideas move between the different songs. Um, but I, I wanted to mention moving on before we left. Yeah, well, that needed to be mentioned. So thank you. Uh, and thank both of you for uh, bearing with me for yet another one of these Christian rock album dissections. Matthew, what are we talking about next week? Next week, we're going to talk about the 2006 movie Stranger Than Fiction. It's the story of an IRS auditor named Harold Crick, who's played by Will Ferrell, 
And he wakes up one day and can suddenly hear a narrator telling the story of his life. And what's more, the narrator reveals that Harold's death is going to occur imminently. This isn't your typical Will Ferrell film, so don't let his involvement put you off. Um, it also features Emma Thompson, Dustin Hoffman, Maggie Gyllenhaal, and, or Gyllenhaal, pardon me, and, and Queen Latifah. Um, so I'm, I'm uh, looking forward to talking with you guys about this movie. Uh, in the meantime, you can get in touch with us at uh, thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or our website, which is christianhumanist.org. We're on Twitter. I'm at Kel Bummer. Matthew is Matthew A. Block. That's one T in Matthew. And Grubbs is at The Real Grubbsy. Uh, you can follow the network at CH Radio Network. Uh, the Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Until next week, this is Michael Farmer for David Grubbs, for Matthew Block, and for the absent Nathan Gilmore saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger.